0: If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to Psalm 17. One thing I appreciate very much, uh, having been gone and worshiped in three different churches on Sunday mornings, the Lord's Day. Each Sunday we were in a different place. But I don't think we were at a single church where um, the overarching and the overall population brought their Bibles with them, opened up the Word of God, and stood for the reading of God's Word. And that is something I highly value in our congregation. It's one of the reasons why uh, oftentimes, and sometimes we make mistakes, sometimes it slips in there, but we don't usually put the main scripture on the screen. We want you to open up the Bible and see for yourself what we're studying. And so I just encourage you to follow along. There's always a Bible in the pew rack in front of you. And so uh, if you would like Uh, You can reach for one of those, but let's stand in honor of the reading of God's word this morning. Psalm 17, a prayer of David. Hear a just cause, O Lord. Attend to my cry. Give ear to my prayer from lips free of deceit. From your presence, let my vindication come. Let your eyes behold the right. You have tried my heart. You have visited me by night. You have tested me, and you will find nothing. I have purposed that my mouth will not transgress. With regard to the works of man, by the word of your lips, I have avoided the ways of the violent. My steps have held fast to your paths. My feet have not slipped. I call upon you, for you will answer me, O God. Incline your ear to me. Hear my words. Seriously, show your steadfast love, O Savior, of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings from the wicked who do me violence my deadly enemies who surround me. They close their hearts to pity. With their mouths, they speak arrogantly. They have now surrounded our steps. They set their eyes to cast us to the ground. He is like a lion, eager to tear, as a young lion lurking in ambush. Arise, O Lord, confront him, subdue him. Deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword, from men by your hand, O Lord, from men of the world whose portion is in this life. You fill their womb with treasure. They are satisfied with children, and they leave their abundance to their infants. As for me, I shall behold your face, in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Thank you for standing. You may be seated. Charles Spurgeon has a six-volume set called The Treasury of David, that sits on my desk. You're invited to come anytime to my office and borrow it if you want to thumb through his comments on the Psalms. But he says, by way of introduction to this Psalm, that it has the smell of the furnace on it. It has the smell of the furnace on it. But there's evidence in the last verse that the one who wrote it, David, came unharmed out of the flame. It is a plaintive song, an appeal, if you will, to heaven from the persecutions of earth. And a spiritual eye, he writes, may see Jesus here. A spiritual eye may see Christ. I hope to show you more of Christ as we get to the end of the message, but I have picked up on this idea that this is a prayer Of the persecuted on earth, an appeal to heaven for God to deliver under persecution. And so the title of today's message is how to pray when you're persecuted. Because this sort of persecution is not unique to David, nor is it unique to David's Lord. In fact, it was our Savior Jesus who said in John chapter 15 and verse 20, A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. So it seems to me that the Holy Spirit has seen fit to incorporate this psalm in the Psalter for a number of reasons, but I would argue for at least the reason that we should pray like this when we are persecuted. Now, I want to give this. Uh, the sermon on how to pray when persecuted in the context of all of Scripture and remind you what Paul said about vengeance. In Romans chapter 12, he said this, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And so in the context of a New Covenant, as we are New Testament believers, I want us to understand that this uh, shapes and forms our prayers as well. But I would argue as we come through the psalm, you will see that this is David's attitude as well, to leave it to God, to leave it in God's hands. So I want us to consider four things for which we can pray when we are persecuted, when we are persecuted. I know many of you work in government and military and secular jobs. You go to schools uh, with uh, unbelievers, and there is no doubt in my mind that we are facing persecution as Christians now. And I would argue that as we progress in society, it, it appears as though we are headed towards greater persecution. So save these notes. Remember Psalm 17 as a prayer, as a guide for you, and pray, firstly, for vindication. Pray for vindication based on God's examination of the righteousness of your cause pray for vindication, but that vindication is based on God's examination of the righteousness of your cause about which you are praying. That is what is taking place in the first five verses of this psalm. Now, before anyone accuses me, or David for that matter, of uh, claiming a works-based righteousness or a sinless perfection in all that he says and does— It is very evident that David did not think he was perfect, but rather that he was righteous in this cause to which he was pleading for God to vindicate him. The psalmist writes in Psalm 130 in verse 3, if the Lord would mark iniquity, who could stand? None of us are sinless before God. And so David's plea of righteousness here is not a plea of sinless perfection. It is rather Based on God's examination of the righteousness of the cause he is bringing before him, I'm being being sought after, enemies are pursuing me, and God, I'm innocent. And he's pleading that innocence. So David is, is a misrepresented man. He has been libeled. And he's bringing his case before God, the righteous judge. Saul thinks David has it out for him. Saul thinks David wants to uh, take his role as king and possibly kill him, but the, the evidence is not there. In First Samuel 24 and 26, David had opportunity to take Saul and take his life. And as you'll recall, he, he took the corner of his garment, as uh, the receipt, I'm proving I could have killed you, but I didn't. I'm innocent here. I don't, I don't want to take something from you that is only belongs to God. God has anointed you as king, and and he was respectful, so he pleads innocence in his cause, and he's confidently inviting God to examine him. Now, one thing, that's a really scary thing to consider, isn't it? To invite God to examine your heart and to examine your righteousness and justice in the cause you're pleading. But on the other hand, we know, as David did, that God knows our hearts anyway. In fact, in verse 3, David says, you have tried my heart. You have visited me by night. You have tested me and you will find nothing. This is in those weak and vulnerable moments at night where David was alone with the Lord and his own thoughts and he has been examined by God, and he knows his heart to be right in this cause. Just by way of application today, I want to ask you, do you have, as a part of your 24-hour routine, time alone with God? Do you have a moment, maybe in bed at night, as you're contemplating the day and how you've lived for the Lord, Or you turn the TV off, or put the social media down, or put your book or magazine that you're reading away, and pray and ask God to examine your heart. David says, I've done this, and I know I'm innocent in regard to this matter. Now, before we put um, David's righteousness only in the little box of this one area about which he's praying, I want to remind you from the greater context of Scripture that the righteousness of the person praying matters. Consider with me James chapter 5, verses 16 through 18, where the apostle says, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. And then he goes on to give the example of Elijah, who was a man just like us, and his prayer had great effect on the weather. And, and it was because he was righteous before God and pleading uh, for God to send, um, to, to hold back the rain and then send it. So if we are living with unconfessed sin in our lives, we shouldn't be surprised. If our prayer lives are struggling, consider Isaiah 59 verses 1 and 2. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save or his ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Once again, Are you going to God in prayer, pretending like there is no barrier between you and him over unconfessed sin that you're holding back in your heart, ignoring and and not confessing and repenting before God? This is uh, of great importance to us as we approach the Lord's Supper today. Paul says that we ought to examine ourselves before we partake of Communion, let a person he says in first Corinthians eleven examine himself and then uh, let him examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. If we are living in disobedience to God and out of fellowship with one another, our prayer lives and our communion with God will undoubtedly be impacted and just to seal the deal, let me remind you how david 's Lord, our Savior Jesus taught. His disciples to pray. He said that we ought to ask the Father to forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. We need to do business with God as we pray for God to act and God to move and vindicate and and bring justice in the cause we're pleading before Him. Let us be reminded of the importance of our righteousness and that God the righteous judge is examining our hearts as we pray. Let us not have any pretense in prayer when we are persecuted. Before we leave this section, take notice how David was able to live rightly, how he was able to avoid going off on the wrong path. He says in verse 4, with regard to the works of man, by the word of your lips, I have avoided the ways of the violent how did he keep himself pure? In fact, Psalm 119, the the psalmist asks, how can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. It's by the word of your lips. It's by God's word that David lived rightly. And so Christians, let me just sum it up for you. We are declared righteous by God. It's nothing we can do to earn our salvation. We are declared righteous by our faith and trust in what Jesus did for us on the cross. That's our justification. But we are to live holy and righteous lives. And God is transforming us, Scripture says, into the likeness of Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit and by obedience to his word. The law goes from being a curse for us and to us to being the path of, which we walk. We, uh, our, our lamp and our light is the word of God to illuminate how we should live in this life. So if we are going to have righteousness before God when we pray, we should do so according to God's word. But in addition to uh, this idea of praying for vindication for our righteous cause when we are persecuted, secondly, we should pray for protection based on confidence in God's covenantal love. Pray for protection when you're persecuted. But notice, as we're going to see here, the bedrock foundation of David's confidence is the covenant love, the steadfast love of God. In verses 6 through 12, David is pleading for God's protection from enemies that are very real. He describes them in verses 10 through 12. In verse 10, he says, they close their hearts to pity. That phrase is actually a difficult phrase to translate in Hebrew. Uh, it actually, it, it literally is like they, they close up. I've got enough to demonstrate here. They close their fat up, okay? They close up their fat. Now, what is, what is that about? Well, in the Old Testament days, the concept was that the heart, the seed of one's emotions, was in one's belly, in one's stomach. Uh, the word for compassion and, uh, in Greek is splaknon, it's out of our bowels. You know, we have this, this um, visceral reaction. What we really deeply and most sincerely want comes from our stomachs. And so the heart— was the seed of the emotions, and so when they close up their fat, it's as though they're being callous in their hearts. It's a fancy way in Hebrew of saying they're heartless. They're pitiless. They're ruthless, and they are uh, ferocious. As we will see, uh, David is surrounded by the enemies in verse 11, and then in verse 12, he writes that the enemy is like a lion that's eager to tear a young lion lurking in ambush. In summary, these enemies are not nice dudes. All right, they're, they're just not nice dudes, okay? So David prays for protection to the Savior of those who take refuge in him. I want us to look closely at um, verse 7 and verse 8. And I want to consider in verse 7 that David, as he is praying for God to show his steadfast love, he is using language that is alluding to the exodus in verse 7. Look at Exodus 15, verses 11 through 13. "'Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders?' You stretched out your right hand. Okay, you see that in verse 7? And the earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love. Do you see that in verse 7? The people whom you have redeemed, you have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. David, as a man of God, is recalling in this language God's steadfast love of his people. His chesed, that is God's covenant love for the people of Israel. Solomon had that kind of love in mind when he said, many waters cannot quench love, neither can the floods drown it. And in First John, John writes, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. David, when he prays, prays for protection based on the covenant steadfast love of God. And I want to to show you from the New Testament that that is the same source of our confidence in persecution and in trial. Paul says in Romans 8.18, I consider that the sufferings of this world are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed to us. There's some persecutions, there's some problems going on, and he's going to list them in Romans 8 in some of our favorite passages in all of scripture. In Romans 8.33, he asks, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Do you see vindication there? who is to condemn christ jesus is the one who died more than that who is raised who is at the right hand of god who indeed is interceding for us do you see god's hand of protection there and then he asks the question who shall separate us from what the love of christ shall tribulation or distress, or here it is, persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. He goes on to talk about how we are being killed all day long. We're like sheep to be slaughtered. We are going to be persecuted in this world. And so he asks, what's going to separate us? Will that persecution, will that trouble we face separate us from the love of Christ? Certainly not. The covenant love of Christ is the bedrock of our hope and distress. He says in verse 38 and 39, "I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come. anybody worried about the future these days? nor height, nor depth, nor anything else, in all creation, will be able to separate us from what? The love of God. In Christ Jesus, our Lord. So when we are persecuted, our prayer for protection finds its bedrock foundation of hope in the covenant love of God. Be reminded of that today, believers. And then notice, back in Psalm 17, how David prays for God to protect him. He asks that God would keep him, verse 8, as the apple of his eye. Keep me, he prays to the Lord, as the apple of your eye and hide me in the shadow of your wings. Now, time doesn't permit me to share some of the notes I have here of sermons, uh, a whole sermon that Charles Spurgeon wrote on two words, keep me. But let me just encourage you that that is a way to pray. Keep me. Keep me, Lord. Protect me. Make that a part of your prayer life. Not just that God has saved you, but that he keeps you in his hand. He protects you, and he is taking you home. But then notice how he asks God to keep him as the apple of his eye. I have a friend in Tallahassee who is an eye doctor. He uses his vocation wonderfully to serve his community, not just to the health of their eyes, but Every opportunity he gets, he shares about the design of the eye and its magnificence and uses it as an argument for intelligent design and to have conversations about the Lord with those who come to his office. He's a lay elder at his church, faithful Christian man. But think about the eye. Think about this phrase and just kind of dive into it with me for a moment. There is perhaps no other part of our body more well-guarded and protected than our eyes. We have these little furry things on the top here, like like hedges that keep stuff out. Uh, Spurgeon said at night, when we close our eyes, our eyelids are like a locked fortress to guard and protect what's going on inside. Our tear ducts, they, they tear up to take impurities out of them and then almost involuntarily, like you play the snap game with your friend, right? Like we, we blink, we close our eyes, if we're going to fall. Our hands go out to protect our face, to protect our eyes. It's almost as though our whole bodies are designed to keep and protect these. And that is how David prays that God would protect him. What a beautiful metaphor, what a beautiful picture of the way God will keep and preserve and protect us. David goes on to speak of the analogy of a mother hen, so to speak, covering the baby chicks under the shelter of a wing or an eagle, as Exodus language says in Exodus 19 that we studied. God is keeping us and protecting us, lovingly guarding us. So, When we pray, we should pray that God would protect us like this, protect us from persecution, and we do so with great confidence and great admiration for the many ways in which he does. I don't pretend as though, neither does Paul, that we won't face trials, that we won't face persecutions, but in the end, God will keep his own and he will vindicate his own. Thirdly, as we see in Psalm 17, we ought to pray for deliverance based on God's methods. Based on God's methods. Very important to catch the whole phrase here. When we're persecuted, pray for deliverance. But pray that he would deliver according to his ways. In verse 13, we see four imperatives of David. He says, arise, O Lord, confront the enemy, subdue him, and deliver my soul. This is obviously urgent, and this is a real and present danger for David. He is desperately praying. It reminded me of the parable of the persistent neighbor who comes at night and bangs on the door and bangs on the door, and Jesus says it's not because the guy really wanted to get up, it's because he wanted to get rid of the guy who's bugging him so much. That's how we should pray. Pray persistently. The parable of the persistent widow is of the same vein. We need to be reminded of this as believers, that we don't just pray one time and forget about it. Let's keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking. Be reminded today to pray persistently as we pray for protection and deliverance from persecution. But notice something that could slip right by if we didn't read carefully verses 13 and beginning of 14. David says, deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword. I think that's really important. By your sword. And then verse 14, from from men, by your hand, O Lord. At the beginning of the message, we considered Romans 12, 19, where Paul said to not avenge ourselves, but to leave it to the wrath of God. I think that's exactly what David is praying right here. Deliver me by your sword. Deliver me by your hand. Use your ways and your method to bring about my deliverance. If we think about it, how could we ever properly repay injustices done to us? We are finite. Our knowledge is limited. Determining motives is not something we are very good at. We must rely on God to render perfect justice. And he does, and he will. Listen, the justice of God demanded the sacrificial atonement of the blood of Jesus to forgive you and me. And, and if we pray for our enemies, we pray as we are taught in Scripture to pray, and they turn to Christ for his blood and, and his forgiveness of sins, they will find not only mercy of God, but the justice of God poured out on their substitute, Jesus. But if our enemies will not repent, and they do not receive God's forgiveness, and Christ's substitutionary atonement, they will receive the just penalty of the wrath of God for their sin. So when David prays, he prays that God would avenge by his sword and by his hand, his methods. And I want you to see that sometimes the method God chooses isn't the way we would do things. Sometimes he will fill a wicked person's belly up with treasure and give them what they really want. Pleasure, riches, power, and a heritage in this world, in this life. James says it's almost like they're a calf being fattened for slaughter. Read with me in James five, verses one through six. Come now, you rich! And this is speaking to righteous, rich—the ones who have cheated and scandalized people. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. James says that there is a kind of self-indulgence and a kind of pleasure-seeking and wealth in this life that is as though God is giving them what they really want. Paul says it like this. He says that people... Have turned away from the Creator and sought pleasure alone in the created things. David recognizes one way that God would judge the wicked would be to give them what they really want. And so the Apostle Paul says, Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. When we look out amongst the world and we see People living for this life alone, it's a lot like what our brother David shared earlier today. They are filling up broken cisterns, seeking pleasure everywhere they can find it, and never being satisfied. So, we should learn a twofold lesson from this point. First of all, and young people, children, young adults, I want you to hear this very clearly. Never equate a person's prosperity in this world with God's approval of that person. Let me say it again. We see these stars on TV, sports and movie stars, and politicians, and people that look like they have everything they want all the money they'd ever need, a nice job, a a beautiful spouse, and Everything seems easy. They look healthy. Don't equate when you see prosperity in a person's life. Don't say that automatically equals that God loves them, that God is is happy with them, that God approves of them. It may be God is judging them, that God is giving them what they really want. They want things in this life. They don't seek God. And in the end, their pursuit of those earthly pleasures will mean that they miss out on eternal, that means forever, pleasures of God and the satisfaction of knowing and rejoicing in him. And then secondly, when we pray, let's trust God to deal with our persecutors in his own methods and with his own intended results. Now, that's hard. That is hard. I confess that is a difficult thing to do. But that is exactly the way David prayed and the way Paul taught us to pray. We pray and trust that God will deal in his own ways and his own methods. It might seem like your enemy is getting away with it. It might seem like they're prospering But it could be that they're being fattened like a calf in the day of slaughter. Again, not my words, but James's. God's vengeance, God's justice will always be correct. So when we pray for deliverance, we pray for God's methods alone. And listen, we are New Testament saints. So, that again should largely point us to point others to Christ and Calvary. God's method of justice in this world is to place your faith and trust in Jesus and receive eternal life and let him take the just punishment of the wrath we all deserve. We are debtors to grace, every one of us, and we should pray for our enemies. That is what our Lord taught us to do. And the prayer we should pray is, Lord, lead them to Calvary. Lead them to Jesus where they can find mercy and justice and of course we understand that if they don't turn to Christ they will sadly bear the wrath that John 3:36 says remains on them and they will pay the punishment for their own sins in eternal hell so let's pray for our enemies praying that they would not seek their portion in this life alone but repent and find satisfaction in God. And that is our fourth and final thing to learn from David's prayer in Psalm 17. And that is, we should pray for satisfaction based on beholding God's face. Our satisfaction is in beholding God. He says in verse 15, "'As for me, I shall.'" Do you hear the faith of David? "'I shall behold your face in righteousness.'" when I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. Whereas the wicked find their satisfaction in children and an abundance of things in this life, the righteous person will only be satisfied by the face of God himself. Think with me of the many times we find this to be true in scripture. To Abraham, God says in Genesis 15, I am your shield I am your exceedingly great reward. David agrees. Last week, uh, Brother Allen, when he was preaching Psalm 16.5, he he preached on this verse, The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. He is the one who holds my lot. He is the one who, uh, at the end of Psalm 16, says, uh, In your presence there is fullness of joy and, and pleasures evermore in your paths alone. So we we look for our reward and our satisfaction, as our brother David said in his testimony, in Christ alone and in the living waters that come from him. Here also in Psalm 17 and verse 15, we see David is praying to be satisfied with God and his likeness. The righteous know and understand That is only in the presence of the Lord that there is fullness of peace and happiness and joy eternal. So we pray that God will satisfy us with his presence. There is a small amount of debate amongst commentators about what David means by the phrase, when I awake, could be just the next morning. But some, as you can imagine, see this as an Old Testament allusion to the resurrection which I certainly do not think is out of the question. Alan Ross, in his commentary, says, Just what, it, what David expected is not totally clear, but the righteous have come to expect this glorious future will extend to the life to come. The words of this psalm anticipate the New Testament words promising ultimate vindication for the righteous in First John 3, which say, We shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Brothers and sisters, when we are persecuted, our prayer can arise with confident faith that we will receive the reward of our salvation, which is God himself. We believe this not because of our own strength or our own works, but because of God's steadfast love. Virgin said this Psalm has the smell of the furnace on it, but he concluded by saying a spiritual eye may see Jesus here. So as I close, let me give you just a few ways we can see Jesus in Psalm 17. Jesus' prayer for was not based on the righteousness of a single cause. Rather, we know that Christ was totally righteous. He was the only one who could pray, like Psalm 17 and verse 5, my feet have not slipped, and mean, oh, never slipped. He was totally righteous, and he was vindicated based on his righteous life. Jesus' prayer for protection is not based simply on the covenant love of God determined before the foundation of the world for his people. Rather, it is based on the love he shared with the Father and the Spirit for all eternity. Jesus was surrounded by his enemies at the cross. I know that if you'll study closely verses 8 through 12, specifically 10 through 12, you will sense and understand that Jesus was also surrounded by fierce enemies who wished to devour him. There's similar phrases here to what's found in Psalm 22, which is also considered a messianic psalm, which says, Roaring lions tearing their prey have surrounded me. Jesus was faced with a fierce enemy at Calvary. But Jesus' prayer for deliverance was also based on God's methods he himself would bear the wrath of God for the sake of ruined sinners like me. He prayed, Father, not my will but yours. Not my way but yours. Be done. Succumb to the temptations to let his pleasures be merely in this life. And if there was ever a one who was tempted to run after the promises of this world, Jesus was tempted in the desert, with all of the riches of the world, all the power he could imagine in this life. And he rejected it for the joy of being faithful to the will of the Father who sent him. And scripture tells us, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. And so Jesus prayed for deliverance the way that God would deliver him. And Jesus would be satisfied with nothing less than the joy of standing and seating at the right hand of the Father, having done and completed his will. When he prayed at Calvary, he prayed, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And three days later, according to the spirit of holiness, Paul tells us, the The righteousness of his life, the power, Hebrews says, of an indestructibly holy life. Jesus arose from the grave victorious and is now seated at the right hand of God. Hebrews 5, 7 says, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. The same psalter we have is the psalter Jesus had, and I just can only imagine that Jesus prayed Psalm 17. Jesus in his flesh offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to the one who was able to save, and he was heard because of his reverence. Jesus is the ultimate voice of the prayer of the persecuted in Psalm 17. And yes, I pray that with a spiritual eye you have seen Christ today. Will you bow your heads with me in prayer? Heavenly Father, it is not easy to be Persecuted, slandered, or libeled, misrepresented. And Lord, I know that all across the room there are many who have experienced times of persecution and hardship because of their stand for their faith. I pray that through your words today, we have all been reminded of the various ways we can pray for you to move, to vindicate, to protect, to deliver, and to satisfy us. Lord, all based on your will and your ways and your word and your promises and your covenant love. God, may we never forget that you are a righteous judge. You will by no means clear the guilty. So, Father, I pray that as I've preached today of the very evident nature of your justice, that those in the room who have not placed their faith in Christ would run to Jesus today for forgiveness of sins that will be justly judged apart from your shed blood on Calvary. Father, what amazing grace you've bestowed on us to send your son Jesus to die for our sins. We deserve punishment we are all like the enemies that slander and persecute. We have joined in the lies and the, joined in the, the calls for your crucifixion. Lord, we are all guilty of sin that led to your death at Calvary of Christ at Calvary. So, Lord, I pray that you would teach us to run to Jesus for justice. Teach us to be reminded of the position we have if we are believers of forgiveness and protection. Lord, of your intercession for us, that you are seated at the right hand of God, and you, Jesus, are pleading for our protection and our um, safe arrival. Lord, I pray that you would help us to recall these things as we go through the challenges we face in our various occupations and the schools and and our families and any circumstance in which we find ourselves, may we turn to scripture and be guided on how to pray and how to seek you. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for this time together in it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.